Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Sensational She Geek live from Yancey Street. This episode is coming a little bit late as it has been a little bit of a busy week for me, but that's okay. We're here now and that's what matters. This is going to be a pretty big episode this week, so get yourself strapped in. Uh, we will be starting off as usual with the news. Unfortunately, we did have another legendary comic book creator and influencer who passed away this week, and that was the legendary George Perez. I'm sure you're familiar with the name if you're familiar with the industry, specifically um, a certain era of things you know, the 80s over at DC Comics, the 70s over at Marvel Comics, and then even up and through the 90s, he was just a really incredible name in the industry who has done unimaginable feats for certain characters and teams. So we'll talk a little bit about him uh, before we get into the rest of the news, of which we have the subsections for rumors, just a couple of things in the coming soon. We're going to talk of some Doctor Who, some Umbrella Academy, some Red Sonia, and some Star Wars. And then, of course, we have the latest Kenobi trailer that came out, which we will briefly discuss as well. After the news, we'll go into the comic book picks. These were things that came out May 3rd and 4th, um, more or less last week. There's only a couple of things, but they were all really great. Uh, and then we'll talk briefly about the free comic book day wrap-up. Free comic book day was this past Saturday, the 7th of May. Uh, I have one, two, three, four titles that I will be discussing. Um, that's all I've really gotten around to read, unfortunately, at this point. But hopefully I will have some, some more stuff to talk about in the future if I eventually get those titles. But regardless, uh, we also have comic book polls for this week. These are things that actually have already come out uh, for the 10th and the 11th. Again, this is a delayed episode, but we'll just briefly go over those things that are on my poll list for this week. Um, of course, we will be discussing the Moon Knight finale, which possibly surprisingly i don't have a ton to say about <laughs> um, but we are discussing then young justice season four episode 21 titled odyssey of death before we get into our two different categories for doctor strange in the multiverse of madness and that is because i have a much briefer honestly spoiler free reaction if you have not seen the movie and you want to know what i think about it just some general thoughts without spoilers we have a brief section on that before we go full spoiler into the multiverse um, and i cover oh dear quite a lot of things characters the multiverse itself Self, um, the Illuminati, we have cameos, we have locations, and of course we're going to discuss all the Stranges and all the Wandas. I'm trying to not spoil anything as I go over this here. Uh, and so that's how we're going to wrap up the episode talking about the spoilers of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Before we get into things as usual, let's go over some of our uh, podcast details. First off, as it's somewhat newer, is the Yancey Street Discord. I have been putting a fresh invite link to the Discord at the bottom of each episode. That's because the links only last seven days, so if you have tried to get in through a different link, you'll have to go through the one that is the most recent for each new episode. Um, but that is just a place for general discussion of all things geek-related. Of course, there's also general chat and other fun community-related categories, uh, just a fun 
kind of community discord to be involved with. Um, you can follow me most easily on social media on Instagram. My username is Anne with the comics. Um, for podcast updates, my Twitter is Savage She Geek. And then my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com. And I've been fixing I've been fixing up the website a lot so that it is still relevant in addition to the podcast. So right now you can check out I have a brand new beginner's guide to both comics and manga. That's for anybody who has possibly been listening to the podcast for like the MCU, DCU stuff um, and possibly wants to get into reading comics themselves. I have a really great introductory guide to comics there and of course a section for questions if you have any further questions. Um, As well as manga, a little bit on manga as well too. Um, And it covers any information you might need to take your first steps into the world of reading comics um, as well as recommendations for some things you might enjoy. Um, I do also have reading orders for various leading ladies on my site with Clea, Madeline Pryor, and Magic as three really relevant characters, um, specifically in Marvel at the moment between the MCU and the uh, comics. Anything that you would want to hear about my thoughts on pre-2021 is can be found written on the blog instead of the podcast. I did not start the podcast until February 2021, so if you want to hear about anything Previous to that or prior to that, um, you can check out things on the general blog. And I also have my uh, pod notes, which are for reading the podcast instead of listening to the podcast. Um, for those who are just prefer to do it that way or who are hearing impaired and who would still like to keep up with the podcast. I also have links for everywhere that you can listen to the podcast, which does include pretty much all podcast hosting apps anywhere that you search for. It should pretty much be there. Um, and that does include YouTube, where I also where I post all of the episodes in a single playlist in order so that, uh, you know, if that's just an easier way for you to listen from on YouTube, there you go. And I also post action figure reviews view videos. been trying to get back more into that recently. Um, my most recent upload will be Whis from Dragon Ball Super. They re-released his figure through SH Figure Arts and we got one for uh, a really decent price, which was awesome because the aftermarket is crazy these days. Um, so you can see all about Whis on the Sensational She Geek YouTube channel, where I also have a tour of our entire collection that I have with my husband, which is about a 40 minute video and then I went back and added uh, four, uh, 15 minutes actually of extra footage or things that I forgot to put in the first video after the fact so there's actually two pretty long videos of the collection. I do also have a podcast Patreon you can find under just Sensational She Geek. It's set up for donations to support the podcast and each episode um, for the podcast now comes with a 20 to 30 minute podcast after show is what we're calling it and that is posted exclusively on the Patreon page. I've only done two of them so far which I have made available for public viewing several days after the initial post so you can see if it is the kind of content you, you might be interested in. Other things that I have there are Kofi, uh, which is the whole idea of just buy a creator a coffee, as well as Cash Up, Venmo, and PayPal are all linked on my link tree for donations towards the podcast, which should appear linked among other fun things at the bottom of each episode's description. Finally, I have a Redbubble shop with some podcast branded merch and general comics culture merch, such as a uh, a woman's place is in the comic shop is uh, and it's Red Bull Redbubble, so you can get it as a shirt, a mug, a print, a sticker, um, which is the main idea stickers, uh, but whatever you want really. And I have a couple other cool designs there. You can find it under She Geek Shop. 
As I mentioned, I do want to start out with a little tribute to George Perez at the beginning of this new segment because he really was a fantastic legendary creator in the entire comics industry and it would be a disservice not to mention that. I really struggled with coming up with something of my own to say about Perez because there honestly is already so much that has been said about people so I, um, I'm i not going to try and credit myself with coming up with any of these really nice things that people have said because you can find so many articles out there and they have all said it so much better than I could so um, I'm going to go ahead and link this obituary that Polygon put, uh, really really well written, um, goes through point a little kind of by point by point by his through his career, um, through his successes and all of the fantastic work that he did to um, basically make successful uh, for the first time in usually a long time for most of these characters uh, the comics that they were involved in. So everything I'm going to go through now is taken from this fantastic Polygon article. Again, I'm going to link it in the uh, in the description of this episode because it is really well written. Uh, let's see, it's written by Tim Hanley. Um, so just if you want to check that out to see the full thing and not just me kind of paraphrasing, definitely do that. Um, but George Perez, he did die this past Friday at the age of 67. Very young. Um, I know we lost Neil Adams just a week a week prior um he was 80 years old so this is he's quite george perez is quite a bit younger um but he had you would have to say an equally noteworthy career in the comics industry perez did have a complicated history with uh pancreatic cancer which has uh, pretty much been his his cause of death at a slightly earlier age there's a lot of um kind of sadness that we've talked about that comes from the industry and creators not being taken care of properly um, and I believe it is the Hero Initiative that is a fund that was started for specifically to take care of these legendary comic creators who were not being taken care of by the companies that they spent decades putting out IP for making them millions and millions of dollars and just briefly to anybody who argues that oh well that was their job to make that IP it's also actors' jobs to act, so why are they getting paid so much? They're creating the IP for the companies, so are these writers. Or, in Perez's case, a more or less art artist. Perez was born in the South Bronx, New York in 1954, the son of a Puerto Rican couple. Comic books helped him learn English, and he was 19 when he got his start in the industry, landing a job as Rick Buckler, Rich Buckler's assistant in 1973. By 1975, for Marvel, he had created White Tiger, the first Puerto Rican superhero alongside writer Bill Mantlo. Now, now, White Tiger is now a legendary character who I believe his, it's either his daughter or his younger sister has now taken up the mantle. Um, I, I think it's a really cool thing when they, when they kind of make these legacy characters who more or less still contain the mantle themselves, but who also have somebody who's picking it up actively for a next generation. The same year that he created White Tiger, Perez was brought on to Avengers, starting with 141. He had a truly phenomenal run on the book, which he did for a really happy time because he was channeling a lot of his childhood artistic heroes like Sal Bushima and Kurt Swan. In 1980, Perez was offered a job at DC Comics by Marv Wolfman to do the new Teen Titans. It was a modern update for the team. And after a bit of a rough start in wanting to do the job, he finally ended up falling in love with the team and really bolstered them to where we knew them to be today. 
He was also the one to introduce characters like Cyborg, Raven, and Starfire. Raven and Starfire probably being two of the uh, fan favorite Teen Titan characters. Cyborg, who has been off and on the Justice League and the Teen Titans pretty much ever since this point. It was Perez alongside Wolfman who did the Judas Contract run of the Teen Titans story, as well as a large other number of relevant storylines and notable ones from the... Uh, late 80s to early 90s. Now this section I'm actually just going to read straight from the Polygon article because I feel like it is really well put together. They say Perez developed a reputation as a master of team books, but one of his most beloved projects was a solo venture. When DC prepared to reboot Wonder Woman in the late 1980s, all of the pitches the publisher received were violent and hypersexualized, an approach that did not sit well with Perez's feminist sensibilities. He offered himself as an alternative, despite the series' perennial poor sales. Wonder Woman had been a DC book had been a book DC had to assign, not one that creators clamored for. Perez traded in all the cachet he'd built up at the publisher to do a different take on Wonder Woman, one rooted in mythology and female power. The relaunch debuted in 1987 and was an instant hit. Perez wrote the book, wrote and drew the book, bringing dignity and excitement to the long floundering title. He rebuilt Wonder Woman's mythos from the ground up, honoring her feminist origins while updating her character and her rogues gallery for the present day. His five-year run brought female creators into the fold as well, including co-writer co Mindy Newell and artists Colleen Duran and Jill Thompson. This article notes that Duran and Thompson went on to uh, Eisner award-winning careers, with Duran winning for Neil Gaiman's Snow, Glass, and Apples, which is fantastic, by the way, and Thompson for her Scary Godmother, which I have not read. I would also like to add that Mindy Newell did also go on to have a noteworthy career, although this was not something that won awards. She was the first, well, she wrote the first Catwoman series, which was very much of a Frank Miller take on Catwoman and is honestly one of my favorite Catwoman stories still to this day. The article continues, Today, Perez's revitalization of Wonder Woman is widely regarded as the definitive take on the character, and his time on the book has remained an inspiration to everyone who has written or drawn her since. Boy, it would be hard to find something more true in the world of comics than that statement. Um, to, to bring it up to very modern-day relevancy, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick's Wonder Woman, let's see, what did they call it? Uh, Wonder Woman, the Amazon's Historia. What It's Historia is what the whole thing was supposed to be called. They had to put the Wonder Woman tag on there to make DC happy, but they wanted it to just be called the Amazon's Historia because it is just the history of the Amazons. Um, and one thing that was brought up a lot when that series was first being talked about and then years later finally being put out because it didn't take that long um, was how so much of it was being inspired by the George Perez run. Now they, they they have to be very clear. This is not a continuation of the George Perez run or anything like that. It is simply in the spirit of the George Perez run. Um, and that was something that, as far as I know, was very, very well taken by him. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the look of the era of George Perez's Wonder Woman, uh, look it up. You look up a few covers of his and you will automatically find it to be very easy to spot them. Um, they are iconic. They are true Wonder Woman spirit, um, bright and powerful, and it is, they're gorgeous. So if you, if you see one or two of these covers, you'll start to be able to recognize them because they are iconic. 
Perez has drawn a myriad of truly iconic, aside from what I was just talking about, works across DC and Marvel. One of the most famous being the death of Supergirl, the image of uh, Superman sobbing, holding her body on the cover of that issue. That is a George Perez image, absolutely iconic. And that is one that is homaged constantly among other comic books throughout the industry. He was involved in the 1991 Infinity Gauntlet series with Jim Starlin and Ron Lim, and then brought DC and Marvel together in 2003 for JLA Avengers, which was the crossover written by Kurt Busiek. Perez spent many years struggling with his cancer diagnosis, which a lot of other creators were very supportive, but as I said, um, he could have gotten better support from DC and Marvel themselves. Just saying, especially when it comes to things like healthcare. The Hero Initiative exists as a private company, I believe, that um, helps out creators who need support for medical bills and things like that, especially uh, after COVID and all that. Um, they shouldn't have to exist. <laughs> These creators should be taken care of by the company that paid them to create all of this stuff in the first place. There is no retirement plan for these folks. There is nothing like that. Um, it's 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 really sad that the Here Initiative even had to step in, but I'm glad that they were in a position that they could help out with uh, his medical stuff. But um, a couple of quotes here, one from Vita Ayala, who is Puerto Rican as well. Uh, they said, the impact of George Perez on our culture as well as individual level cannot be quantified. Perez is a legend. He helped shape the world as I know it. Marv Wolfman wrote, I can honestly say I have never known a better or more caring person. Um, and then you have, of course, all of the greats in the modern industry writing about their experiences with Perez as well. I just want to reiterate, um, it's hard to describe, especially to people who aren't super familiar with the industry, um, just how I just how legendary the work that Perez did for the industry really was, um, because you know, between Wonder Woman, The Avengers, Infinity Gauntlet, um, JLA, you know, it, it's kind of incredible the amount of things that he touched on and the amount of effect that all of those, it, he had on all of those things. It wasn't just that he worked on them, um, which I think is what I'm kind of getting down to here. It wasn't just that he worked on these projects. It was that he was a key creator on them. Without his touch, they would not have become what they are today. And in the terms of things like the Teen Titans and Wonder Woman, they may not exist in the comics today if it was not for the work that George Perez did with his compatriots back in the day. Or shit, for in the case of Wonder Woman, what he did alone. Um, it, it really is a mind-boggling legacy that he has left and um, oh that's why I was I remember what I was going to mention um, a couple as as sad as it is that you know DC and Marvel don't take care of their creators who are of this caliber of a legacy um, they did have this really sweet thing um, you know on social media uh, you have people like Jim Lee. He's up there on the DC board of something or other, I'm sure. Um, he's an important dude in the DC stuff, basically. Um, but being a former just, you know, standard creator himself, having worked for both Marvel and DC, it was really nice to see a couple of months ago um, 
uh, a number of these kind of legendary older creators were brought to the DC offices and Jim Lee was there and a couple other guys were there and they just hung out. They hung out and they looked at all the different stuff that was on display at the office. I know George Perez, there's some pictures of him with the uh, Wonder Woman uh, 8 was 89 uh, stuff there with the, the gold suit and uh, all of that, all of that. That was the era that George Perez was writing this. All of that is possible because of him. So it was nice that they, you know, allowed him to go off and uh, have a great day at the DC campus, I guess is whatever they would call it. Um, and and what, what I wanted to mention about the social media, you know, you see a lot of times people like Jim Lee who are personally connected to these stories, but also they have to be professional still. It seems that they write their social media stuff through that kind of lens of professionalism, because I'm still being paid by DC when it comes down to it. Um, but it was really nice on this one particular day. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Jim Lee, I was going to say Stan. Jim Lee, um, he wrote, uh, he put up a couple of pictures and he wrote this post that seemed like the most genuine post I've ever seen from him on social media, just talking about being able to hang out with his friends and heroes and show them, you know, what the legends that they have worked on and helped create have done for the DC community and everything. And so they got to hang out, they got to see the effect of their hard work. Um, and that was really nice, you know, all things considered, it's nice they got to have that a couple of months ago um, before these creators, you know, have passed. And I definitely encourage you to look more into George Perez and uh, any of the work that he has done because it is really, really amazing. And even if you're just looking at art and not doing any kind of reading of the content, it's worth a look. Moving on into rumors then, um, really just have one point here and it's something that I, I believe I mentioned on one of my podcast after shows uh, was Ezra Miller uh, in the DC shebang. You know, Ezra Miller has had a really... He's had a rough couple of years. <laughs> uh, no, he's done it to himself. But, um, and I think I'm actually wrong about that. I think that if uh, Ezra Miller identifies as um, uh, genderqueer in some way, so I think that the correct pronouns are they. So sorry about that. But um, everybody deserves respect in that sense. Um, for whatever reason, Ezra Miller has just been wiling out in Hawaii over the course of I don't know how many times. It seems that the targets have been women, which is also very odd. Um, at this point, I don't know why they just have not banned this person from Hawaii, but um, I, I guess after the most recent couple of, I think, it, I think it was two times within a number of weeks that he was, that they were arrested in Hawaii for um, disorderly conduct and violence. <laughs> I think at one point they threw a chair at a woman. Um, War at long last now, Warner is actually finally considering replacing Ezra Miller as the Flash. Um, there's been all kinds of theories that they're going to be doing this anyway. You know, people have been saying, oh, do the CW Flash, do Grant Gustin. You already have a great Flash there. They can't do that. That's the thing. They can't do that because they already had um, Ezra Miller cameo in the CW Flash thing. So they've already differentiated that these are two separate universes. You can't just kind of mash them into one. I mean, I'm sure they could if they really wanted to, but um, it's it's unlikely that they're going to go that direction. But, but the rumor um, that came out this week was that they are considering replacing Ezra Miller as the Flash with Dylan O'Brien, um, who 
I think more or less got his start with Teen Wolf, which was a pretty decent show with a terrible name. Um, I think they're also doing a Teen Wolf movie that Dylan O'Brien is not involved in, so that's going to work out interestingly. But um, in my mind, you know, Dylan O'Brien is a pretty good actor, but he's, he's been in some decent stuff, but I don't think he ever got a fair shot at getting out of the, like, tween girl audience. Um, I think even in the past couple of projects he's had, he's been, like, the love interest, the teenage love interest. Like, I know there was that Love and Zombies one or whatever it was, Love and Vampires. I don't know. I think it was Love and Zombies. Um, with Jennifer Henwick. Um, same, it's the same kind of role he's always been in. He's never broken out of that shell. Um, if they were even, con I mean, if, if this, if there is any legitimacy to this rumor that they, uh, might be putting Dylan O'Brien in that role, um, and there's a couple of different ways that they could make that work, I think that would be the thing that he needs for his career to get out of that box of the tween heartthrob <laughs> and into something a little bit better. And that's, you can see Robert Pattinson successfully did that with his career. He's a Batman now. I think he kind of won in the case of like cinema careers, but um, there was another thought, as I said, there's a couple of ways they could make um, replacing him, so to say, work. Uh, one, being the obvious, they just decide that they're going to be like, yeah, we're going to put him in here and pretend nothing happened. The probably least likely thing. I think the only thing that would be less likely than that would be to refilm the entire damn movie with a new actor as The Flash. I think that would be um, taking things a little far, just a little bit. <laughs> but uh, uh, one idea that I really liked is what if they have him be a different Flash, such as... Wally West. Uh, Wally, you know, I, I mean, I feel like, first of all, Dylan O'Brien has big Wally West energy. <laughs> the way that he's been kind of boxed into certain roles, uh, definitely big Wally West energy. Um, but uh, that would also make it so that they didn't have to do any kind of like convoluted plot BS to explain why there's this new flash character who is now replacing the one we just saw this would be just a straight up you know whatever happens with ezra miller's flash happens and wally is the new flash of whatever is moving forward if when dc stuff and for all we know this flash movie and all the hullabaloo that's happened because of it this could be their last attempt at this kind of shared universe thing because it's been a train wreck, let's be honest. Um, but I am super curious about these rumors because um, I, I really, at this, I mean, they should have thought about replacing him when the first incident happened. I'm sorry, should have thought about replacing Ezra when the first incident happened. Because um, really, like, it's it's been a number of times now and it just kind of seems like they think they can get away with anything because they haven't only ever had a slap on the wrist, so... And there's a lot of places out there that are saying that these rumors are completely false. There's a lot of places saying that Ezra's already been kicked out and we're only just catching up with it. So this is like a solid just rumor. We'll have to wait a little bit to see if anything comes of it. In the news of Who, Who being Doctor Who, um, the 14th Doctor has been announced. Before we talk about that, I am just wildly relieved. <laughs> um that those, like, big Hollywood rumors that there was going to be, uh, I want to say Cary Grant, that's not his name, Hugh Grant, there we go. It was going to be Hugh Grant, um, which I was just, like, 
I'm not super, super into Doctor Who. I had periods of my life where I was, um, you know, high school and stuff, but at this point, it's just like a nice thing. It's, it's fun. Um, but I, you know, if that had been, a, if that rumor had ended up true, I would have never gone back and watched another episode ever. Um, but it's nice that that's not true. Thank goodness Hugh Grant is not the 14th Doctor. The 14th Doctor is Nkutin Gatwa. Oh god, I am so sorry. Let's try that again. Nkuti Gatwa. I'm sure I said that wrong again. Um, but I'm trying. But he is a Scottish Rwandan actor, and he is 29 years old, which is wild for me, because he's younger than my husband, and he's just a year older than me. <laughs> I'm getting to the point where the doctors are going to start being cast as actors younger than me, and that is kind of freaky, honestly. Um, I had no idea who this actor was. I am not familiar with a single thing that he's been in, but apparently um, he has been a very big character in Netflix's show Sex Education, where he plays Eric Efoing. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, but he is a gay teenager from British Nigerian family in the series. His character is apparently bursting with energy, sass, and joyful flamboyance. Uh, comfortable with the sexua sexuality, but true to his African heritage. This was apparently the breakthrough that earned him this Scottish, oh, a Scottish BAFTA and many BAFTA dominations as well. Um, the new, or not new, um, Russell T. Davies, he was a former showrunner for Doctor Who who is now being brought back. Um, uh, oh, apparently I wrote it down. Yeah, you see, 2009 is when he left the show. Um, but he's being brought back as showrunner of Doctor Who again now, which I know a lot of people are excited for. Uh, but he apparently praised Gatwa's blazing, quote, blazing audition and said that he was the future of Doctor Who. He said in a quote, it was our last audition. It was our very last one. We thought we had someone and then he came in and stole it. Boom, there you go. So, I mean, if they thought that they had somebody and this guy completely blew it out of the water, still, I mean, how are you going to argue with that? Um, and he will make his debut as Doctor next year. Jodie Whittaker is going to do one last 90-minute special where I imagine we'll see either the start to her transition to the 14th Doctor um, or we'll see that at the beginning of Inkuri Gatwa's first episode. Somebody please tell me how to say that so I can stop feeling like such an idiot. The Umbrella Academy news revolves around season three of the show, which will be coming on Netflix. Now we have the date as June 22nd this year. Um, so that's pretty easy to remember. June 22, 22. Uh, this is going to be the third season, as I said, following up on where we left off with the second, the introduction of the Sparrow Academy and a living Hargreaves. If I recall, it was the, uh, the, the, the family, basically, <laughs> the Hargreaves family I believe they wound up in a different universe, um, and there they show up, and it's the Sparrow Academy. Hargreaves is there, and they seem to have a much more uh, in-control handle of their, you know, powers and things, so we'll have to see 
why Hargreaves did such a better job with them. Um, the Sparrows were first introduced in the third comic series of Umbrella Academy called Hotel Oblivion, and they're supposed to be the stars of the forthcoming fourth series, which has no real release date yet, but supposedly it's supposed to be coming out this year. Um, the episodes of season three of the show are going to be called as followed. One, Meet the Family. Two, World's Biggest Ball of Twine. Three, Pocket Full of Lightning. Four, Kugelblitz. Five, Kindest Cut. Six, Marigold. Seven, Off Wiedersehen. Eight, Wedding at the End of the World. Nine, Six Bells. And ten, Oblivion. So that makes a lot of sense with the last comic series being called Hotel Oblivion, which is basically, uh, in case you're curious, Hotel Oblivion was where Hargreaves would put all of his, like, dangerous things <laughs> uh, and villains for his various, you know, children, so he's called them, to uh, be hidden when they were too dangerous to, you know, be out in the world and stuff. And then you come across a lot of villains and things. So um, Gerard Way did say some stuff about the forthcoming fourth series. I keep, I'm mean, tongue twister, forthcoming fourth series. It's kind of confusing. And he says it deals with a very big reveal in the Umbrella Academy universe, something that had been very secret a long time. And our siblings learn a lot about what was happening behind the scenes, as well as discovering the true nature of some characters that have been with them since the beginning. He also says the series finally starts to answer the question, what about the other babies on that day in that moment? The baby's born. The Umbrella Academy siblings are not alone in the world anymore. And that is actually one of the questions that the fans have been asking for a long time. What about the other babies that were born on that day? Um, so it's really cool that we're actually going to see some of that get dived into in the next comic series. But again, for now, we're just going into season three with the Sparrow Academy. Also, Elliot Page is confirming that his character, Vanya, is coming out as transgender and will become Victor, which is a parallel to the actor's real life transition, which I'm very curious how that's gonna go in the show. I imagine it'll be pretty smooth. Um, but uh, I'm, I, I imagine that makes a lot of sense just for logistics sake. Um, to make everything kind of more comfortable for everybody involved. Uh, Red Sonia, the project that we had going for that, had apparently lost its lead actress a month or two ago um, and was having numerous issues with travel in Europe being more or less impossible for them. Um, but the project is now apparently moving forward. There is no word on a replacement star for the lead yet, but if they are saying that they are going forward, they must have something under wraps. Um, maybe they're going about it a different way, more privately. Um, if that possibly was an issue with the last actress, maybe they're trying it differently this time. But in any case, um, I am incredibly pro Project Red Sonia. Please don't mess it up, guys, but um, I'm looking forward for more news for this. Also, when we're as we're talking about Red Sonia, I just wanted to mention her outfit in Immortal Red Sonia, if you read that, is 100% uh, an homage to her first appearance, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's the top, the silver top, the, um, the gold necklace, the red hot pants, the pirate boots, even the straps on her legs. It is pretty cool, and I just dig the crap out of it. Uh, the last rumor, not rumor, but the last coming soon we have here it has to do with Star Wars I mentioned before, and that is that the Ahsoka show is officially now filming. This was as of, I believe, the 9th, um, which is pretty cool because 
this is a show that's been really, really looked forward to by a lot of fans for a long time. Obviously, Rosario Dawson stars as Ahsoka. We also have Hayden Christensen returning again. So exciting as Anakin Skywalker slash Darth Vader. Um, It would be interesting to see some slight flashbacks of them working together. I don't know if that's possible, but I would be down for that. As well as, obviously, older Ahsoka and Vader uh, fighting one another, because that's clearly going to happen if they're both in this. Um, we will also have the live-action debut of Star Wars Rebels characters Sabine Wren. She's going to be played by Natasha Liu Bordizo. And also on board is Ray Stevenson, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Ivana Sacco, uh, who are all in unannounced roles, but I personally am very excited for Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who uh, we saw in Birds of Prey as Huntress, and she did a really fantastic job in that Netflix movie that I can't remember what it's called as well. Uh, The director of the show is going to be Bryce Dallas Howard. There is some weird plane stuff happening overhead, so I apologize if you can hear that. Um, (laughs) But Bryce Dallas Howard says, Without giving anything away, you are going to love the Ahsoka show that's coming up. I cannot tell you anything, but what I can say is that you are, is that you being a fan of the Clone Wars will be greatly rewarded. So what does that mean? If you have not seen the Clone Wars, get on that shit. Sorry, get on that. Um, you will not regret it. First season is kind of wishy-washy. The animation's not great. Don't bother with the movie. It was trash. Um, in my opinion, I guess. But, uh, but there is some truly phenomenal stuff that comes out of the Clone Wars, uh, for Star Wars vibes, we'll just say. Um, so definitely check that out if you have not seen this show. Otherwise, if you have, just get pumped up or rewatch it. You know, do what you're gonna do. It's, it's gonna be a really satisfying watch. Which leaves us with the trailer portion of the news. The only one that we have is actually the second Kenobi teaser trailer, or just trailer, which was teasing Darth Vader and Owen Lars, mostly, in in my opinion, my professional Star Wars reviewer opinion. (laughs) Um, There's a lot of um, flashy footage, getting people interested in locations, in characters, um, but content-wise, um, the one thing that I really took away from this trailer, obviously the first being Vader, because we're all, let's be honest, super duper pumped for that. Um, and, uh, while I'm mentioning that, did you see Hayden Christensen's premiere outfit? Dude cosplayed low-key as Vader. Uh, no, what is it called? He bounded as Vader, right? You know, Disney bound is when you, like, you just the character, but, like, in a normal outfit that's just styled after the character's style. He totally did Vader bound at the premiere, <laughs> but uh, it was great. Um, but the second thing being really exciting from or noteworthy from that trailer was Owen Lars. It seems severely does not want Obi Wan around. He seems to see Obi Wan as problems. Honestly, he's probably super right about that um, because of the Jedi are being hunted and the Jedi sniffing around keeping an eye on Luke. Lars is like, dude, you gotta get out of here because, I mean, obviously it's gonna add up. Um, so really excited for that. I, I, We're not gonna see Lars getting killed, so don't worry about that because he's gotta show up in later stuff and to be killed, you know, later on brutally. So um, again, Kenobi does premiere May 27th. There will be two episodes on that Friday and then it will premiere Wednesdays from then on out after that. And I just want to check because I'm kind of curious. The 27th 
is a Friday, right? Okay, so then the next week is the second. Okay, so there is a two-week gap before Ms. Marvel. Okay, it's not just the next week that Ms. Marvel starts. I still think it's stupid that they're having these premiere more or less at the same schedule, but whatever. <laughs> Moving on into the comic book picks portion of the podcast. These are, again, things that came out May 3rd and 4th. My pick of the week, well, let's go over the list first. It's going to be Giant Size X-Men Thunderbird number one, Iron Man number 19, Twig number one, and Nubia Coronation Special number one. I'm a, I'm a little behind on some things that I have not reviewed yet, such as Monstrous and Saga, but I will hopefully be getting to those this coming week. Uh, but my pick of the week peak of the week oh dear my pick of the week is giant size x-men thunderbird number one um this is in my opinion a really fantastic giant size x-men issue um the previous ones were pretty much all kicking it out of the water being more or less all written by um jonathan hickman and this one is not hickman involved at all and I was really happy to see that it was still pretty excellent. Um, it did take a bit more of a niche character to the surface, being Thunderbird, aka John Proudstar. The bulk of the information about Proudstar's history is that he was um, one of the first X-Men, right? He joined the giant-sized X-Men era. Uh, and he was also the first X-Men to die for Xavier's missions. So... Um, apparently his death was pretty stupid. They kind of make fun of it in this issue. Um, and, you know, it was kind of, uh, at that point, honestly, Proudstar was just a, he was a victim of the era a little bit, <laughs> which was pretty sad. But, um, it's 2022 and dude's back at <laughs> long friggin' last. Um, and they gave him the special to, of course, welcome him back. Um, there was a couple of things that they touched on his brief uh, life hero history. Um, the villain they go up against in this issue is Martinek. Um, he's doing various, you know, bad stuff around the reservation and all that, that, uh, Predator is trying to take, put an end to. Um, oh, he was, um, it was taking in, I believe, mutant, indigenous mutants. It was what it was, imprisoning them, something like that. Um, so Martinek was the guy who was doing this in this issue, Martinek is also the guy who poisons John's mother in the main con- well, not in the main continuity, but, like, in, you know, Marvel history. So that was kind of a nice throwback to John's personal hero- heroic history, um, or failures, possibly, at that point. Um, I do think it is one of the best reintroductions of a character in the Age of Krakoa. It's probably, honestly, one of the only reintroductions, um, but they did a fantastic job with it. One thing that I really wanted to add, uh, they mention in his costume design, which I would definitely encourage you to see the reasoning for uh, why they chose the design they chose and the colors and everything. They mention um, the four colors or the, the four colors of the medicine wheel, which is um, a real thing. I looked it up because I'm, you know, curious. Um, and so they incorporated these four colors. It would be, uh, let's think, it would be red, black, yellow, and white. Uh, but he explains how the symbolism of white is something about you, how you are um, completed, you know, you are a full person, rounded, um, you know, you've earned it. Uh, but he's not putting white on his costume yet. He's putting tur turquoise because turquoise 
uh, symbolizes a little bit more of like, I think it was basically like um, unsureness, uncertainty. And so while he's still earning his place as a hero and as a person again, um, being alive for the first time in decades, he's doing the teal for now on his costume. And I think it's really nice that they bothered to include actual native um, indigenous ideas. And I do have an article on the four colors of the medicine wheel. If you are interested in learning about that at all, I'll put that in the description of this as well. Iron Man number 19, I only read for Patsy as usual. Um, literally only ever read it for Patsy. Um, in this issue, Patsy does take Tony to rehab for, I believe at this point it is his painkillers right um she takes him to rehab we know that in another issue coming up he's going to propose to her there is no way that she says yes <laughs> a woman is not going to take a man to rehab and then say yes to his proposal um when she's busy being his mother especially not a woman like patsy who has already had to dedicate her life from you know her own life to being dedicated to one man with Damon and we saw how that went it did not go well so she is not going to do that again twig number one uh is by Scotty Young it I don't know why it continually surprises me how good of a writer Scotty Young is um but it is a completely adorable series uh first issue I should say at this point um you get some really great variant covers I haven't picked up the one by Peach Romoko which was uh freaking adorable they're all adorable um what could i say that you would like this if it was something else you liked let me think well i know they they compare it to like the the worlds of like the dark crystal and labyrinth and stuff and i can definitely see that comparison in there so if you're into that kind of fantasy um almost puppet fantasy i guess you would say then you'll definitely be into twig nubia coronation special number one uh also very excellent it I did not realize that it was going to give Nubia's backstory from before she was on Themyscira when she was a regular human woman out in the world in her first life. Um, and they revealed that she was a princess on the island of Madagascar worshipping the goddess Sekhmet. So throughout the story, which by the way, it has friggin' killer art by Marguerite Sauvage, um, just stunner art there's a couple other artists in there but hers is the bulk of it i believe um and so then when she is crowned at the end of the issue nubia has a crown bearing a wild cat on it which i take to assume honoring her is there to honor her life before her time at the mascara which i thought was pretty cool that they managed to uh kind of fill out her design and her characterhood and everything in such a smooth way a little bit briefly, we're going to do a quick free comic, we could say, wrap up here. As I had mentioned before, we only have four titles that I'm covering uh, this week for free comic book day. The first is Avatar. Um, they had, it was like an all ages Avatar comic. They had two cute stories in it. One was about Aang and one was about Korra. Obviously adorable. Um, if you're into Avatar, I think you would definitely dig that. The DC Dark Crisis uh, special was fine, I guess. I am really looking forward to seeing uh, John Kent Superman and Yara Floor Wonder Woman, uh, although I am curious how they are going to incorporate or if they're going to incorporate other characters from um, Future State, which is more or less what Dark Crisis is opening the door for. 
Um, one thing I did also notice in this is that Jessica Cruz is apparently a Green Lantern again, um, which makes no sense because the last time we saw her, she was a Yellow Lantern. So I'm not really sure what's going on with that. In the Spider-Man Venom book over at Marvel, I went through this specifically for the Madeline Pryor leaks that came out a few weeks ago that I was not super happy with. Um, apparently, in the, in the Spider-Man side of things, uh, Chasm, who is the new Ben Riley, go figure, he's a villain again, um, he is teaming up with Madeline Pryor dot 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 um so they go and they, they watch as she sicks one of her demons on some random old guy the demon is disguised as a male bin spider-man saves him and then chasm goes so that was just one of the small ones we're gonna make a great team we have a lot in common yeah. so slightly so very slightly <laughs> only thing you have in common is that you're both technical i mean i guess not technically both clones literally this is literally all you have in common, though. They don't have a lot in common. You have one thing in common. One thing. Just one. <laughs> okay, you have two things in common. Neither of you were ever intended to be villains, yet for some reason, comic creators in the modern era keep forcing that down your throats. <sighs> you want to talk about forcing things down people's throats? Why are you making Madeline Pryor a villain still? Why are you making a Spider-Man villain? Why would she care about Spider-Man? She doesn't. Uh, on the Venom side of things in that issue, there is some truly wacky-looking sci-fi fantasy crossover stuff going on in a way that visually does not work for me at all. Um, it, in addition, uh, things that don't work for me, it would seem that Silence, who is the Scream symbiote now, um, the Silence symbiote was given to Normie Osborne. <laughs> How far are we going to fall before we decide to do good things in comics again? <laughs> uh, last but not least, oh, maybe least, I don't know, it depends on your opinion. Uh, Judgment Day is the fourth free comic day thing that we're going to talk about. This was Avengers, X-Men, uh, Eternals, right? Judgment Day. The whole idea is that the Eternals are going to try and fight the X-Men and the Avengers are stuck in the middle. Something along those lines. Um, basically how they're trying to explain that the Eternals fight the Deviants and now they're trying to re I, um, redefine, I guess, deviation as meaning any mutant that is deemed dangerous or out of control mutation. So that all sounds like a matter of opinion. So I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Um, we are also introduced to Bloodline's daughter, Bloodline's daughter, Blade, shoot, I did it again, Bloodline, Blade's daughter, um, who uh, is apparently going to have her own series coming up, which is kind of exciting. Um, and finally, we get the reveal that Moira has somehow turned herself into a robot. Not really sure why or how. Um, and she is going to go in disguise to the Hellfire Gala dressed as Mary Jane Watson, uh, she wants to stop the mutants and make sure that they go to a violent war with the Avengers and all die. I don't, I don't really like, I'm so tired of Moira, honestly, like, just, just stop. Just, now that she's not a mutant, can't you just fucking kill her? Sorry. Just like, she's so annoying. And that wraps up our, uh, comic book day wrap up. All, <laughs> I'm really positive about free comic book day stuff this year. Can you tell? Super positive from the big two. I loved it. <laughs> Sarcasm. 
The comic book polls for the week I'm not going to spend too long on because, again, these have already come out at the time that I am recording this. Uh, May 10th and 11th was their release dates. So uh, the majority of these things were indie. Well, it's, we'll, we'll just kind of talk about the titles. So we have uh, 8 Billion Genies, number one, from Image Comics. This is by Charles Soule and Ryan Brown. Um, basically, the plot is um, everybody in the world gets one genie and a wish, and it causes chaos. Um, we have covers by Ryan Brown, three by Ryan Brown, actually, Declan Shelby, Andre Divoff, Seth Adams, and Jenny Frizen with Steve Seeley, who is her husband. Grim number one is from Boom Studios by Stephanie Phillips and Flaviano Armentaro. The variants are by Jenny Frizen, who has three, Justine Florentino, um... Zoo Orzu, Abigail Larson, Ivan Tao, Dave Johnson, Mike Del Mundo, Jay Lee, and two by Flaviano Armentino. It's also a second printing um, because number one has already sold out at distributor level, which means that comic shops and individuals have ordered all available printed copies of the first issue. And they're, so they're out there, either in somebody's collection already or being sold in comic shops or on eBay. Um, so if you do want to get it, it's still out there, or you can just wait for the second printing. Jurassic League number one is basically exactly what it sounds like. It's Dinosaurs Jurassic, uh, Dinosaur Justice League. It's by Daniel Warren Johnson and Juan Gideon. Immortal Red Sonia number two continues my new favorite Immortal Red, or my new favorite Red Sonia series from Dynamite Comics. It is by Dan Abnett and Alessandro Miracolo. Suicide Squad Get Joker number three is by Brian Azzarillo and Alex Maleev. It is the final issue, and the last issue came out in September of 2021, so it is very much okay if you do not remember what's going on in this comic, or even what it is, and need a steady refresh, because I actually will need that too before I read it myself. Finally, Star Wars Halcyon Legacy number three is a story with Padme Amidala, Anakin Skywalker, and Asajj Ventress. So how was I going to deny myself that? Next up is the Moon Knight finale, which premiered on Wednesday, May 4th. It's been over a week, so don't get up my butt about spoilers. Um, I did a really brief overview of this because I was not super, like enthralled by this episode in any way. <laughs> there are points about it that I liked, but in general, I found it to be extremely boring. Um, basically, Amit is released. Gotta say, all things aside, she looked pretty cool, and she was enormous. I think she was gradually growing as time went on. She took the form of a crocodile, which is somewhat accurate to mythology, where she has the head of a crocodile, the hands of a lion, and the body of a hippo. Um, so they just went with the crocodile thing, I guess, to make things easier here. The true crocodile goddess is actually Ma'at, but whatever. Um, actually, I'm not even right about that, am I? Well, Sobek was the crocodile god, um... I feel like I'm blanking on who the, I'm thinking of for the female one. But anyway, um, Amit's release. She looks pretty good. Uh, they had her hair uh, as, like, plated locks going down, which, like, kind of morphed into her scaly tail, which I, I guess worked. Um, but in general, looked really cool. Um, then you get Layla, who, after receiving some very creepy messages from Tauret, who was speaking through dead bodies, she is able to release Khonshu from his Ushapti. Remember, that's the little, uh, stone figurine that his, like, spirit, is, his essence is trapped inside. Uh, I really think, honestly, that she, she spent, like, a solid just five seconds, maybe, looking for her, which one his Ushapti was. Time... In that scenario, it wasn't really a big thing because she did it in time, but, like, 
I still think it would have been a lot better if she had just broken them all and caused like massive chaos amongst the gods because that would 100% stop Amit's plan for sure. All of those gods being free, what are they going to do? Back her up? No. <laughs> but anyway, with Khonshu free, he is able to take the same form as Amit has uh, to fight her physically, which is a really nuts scene, actually. They, they seem to get bigger and bigger as the fight goes on, crushing like real life stuff all around them. Meanwhile, Mark saves Stephen by running across the desert sands to him, putting his whole heart, his holy formed heart now in their hands together. For a moment, Mark turns to rock as well before they're both released by the sand. Tara uses her ship to stop the waves of sand from hitting them, giving them time to get to Osiris's gate and back to the world of the living. Since Layla was already smart enough to break Conchu's prison and release him, Conchu was able to save Stephen slash Mark uh, because the bullet holes were still in his chest and everything, and that saves him, and they become Moon Knight again. Meanwhile, one of my favorite parts, if not my favorite part of the episode, uh, is Layla decides to become the, as she says, temporary avatar to Tauret, aka the Scarlet Scarab. Conchu does try to get to her first, and she basically laughs in his face, which was incredibly appropriate in context. Um, really, really like Layla becoming Scarlet Scarab. Her character in the comics is Marlene, whose father was a target for Mark to try and save. Well, target for Mark that he tried to save, which is just how they do it in the show. They changed her dad's name to Abdullah El Foulet, which um, is hopefully spelled right in the my notes, whose closest comic counterpart is Abdul Faoul, the Scarlet Scarab. I predicted that a few episodes on my podcast that due to her father's death, Layla might pick up that um, that name. However, they've t- they've changed it to be that the Scarlet Scarab is the Tauret avatar, which she becomes. So I was kind of right. I was close. Um, and it's pretty awesome. I do have to mention though, and I'm vaguely curious if he listens to this podcast because he does follow me on Twitter, but the Key Collector Comics guy, if you know that app, he really needs to be sat down and told that he's being unknowingly misogynist because he refuses to acknowledge on his app that Layla is the Scarlet Scarab due to the connection that they had in curating her father and giving her father the name of the guy in the comic, and that's the connection. It's obvious, the clear connection. He was so, so quick to insist that that was superior Iron Man in the first Multiverse of Madness trailer, but he won't give her this. Come on, man. That's that's super shitty. In any case, he uh, her outfit mimicked Tauret's very slightly and had kind of copper red metal wings a la Wonder Woman 89, which ended in long knives for each hand. And she used them to beat the living hell out of Harrow's crew, making it possible for the rest of the situation to get wrapped up. Amit is successfully trapped in Harrow's body with all the remaining gods' avatars who they had to use to do that. Stephen and Mark demand to be freed from Khonshu, which he does agree, and he frees them, and the two of them choose not to kill Harrow, it would seem. Bizarrely enough, in the end of the episode, Mark and Stephen wake up in Stephen's home. The episode was weirdly just kind of ending there without any real explanation of what happened to Harrow, Conchu, Layla, anything after that point. There was a post credit scene uh, or whatever you want to call it that had Jake Lockley appear at last. Um, I have talked about him to death throughout this podcast review of Moon Knight so you can check all that out. 
He wheels Harrow out of the psych ward, takes him to a private limo where he's driving Conchu, dressed now in a suit. He speaks with Harrow briefly, and then Jake turns back from the front seat and shoots Harrow several times point blank. It would seem that Jake is Conchu's secret ace in the hole, where once Mark and Steven have rejected him, Jake is still under his thumb. Happily, it would seem. So that's why they'll think Conchu is a liar and didn't let them go, because they don't know about Jake. And I've seen a lot of people, or well, some people online, concerned that Jake is going to be a villain, that... Uh, I, I don't think that's happening here. Um, if Stephen and Mark don't know about him, it's likely that Jake doesn't have all the information either. Once the right hand and the left even know that the other exists, they can start working on the same page. It also brings up the question of when or how did Jake first appear? Because we, we, we know about the Stephen and Mark history, but what about Jake? What brought Jake up? Um, in the future of Moon Knight... We're probably just going to see him in movies. I would guess that Oscar Isaac um, probably wanted to do this. I mean, we know there's not going to be a second season of Moon Knight, um, but we kind of have to assume that we're going to see him again in movies because they're not just going to leave it like this, right? That would be so strange. <laughs> uh, so we'll probably see him in his own movie next or possibly in his own team movie. Justice League season four, episode 21. This premiered Thursday, May 5th. There's actually a new episode up already today. I'll probably watch it later. But this is the episode from last week. This is season four, episode 21, titled Odyssey of Death. The episode starts with Zaytana seeking Dr. Fate to find the soul of Co Western Mark, which we figure out pretty much right after this. Her father is Dr. Fate and he greets her happily. She takes the helmet from him and puts it on becoming her own version of Dr. Fate because that's their cool new dynamic. Uh, elsewhere, Mantis, who is Lorzod's companion, he got the device that they were looking for to open the Phantom Zone and takes it with them back home. They arrive on New Genesis. Oh, sorry, not back home, back to the current time. The time spear that they use to travel time is broken, trapping them in the present, so they decide to charge the projector in the boiling lake on New Genesis. Later, due to time travel reasons, Metron brings the other heroes to his storage room to find that the projector is already gone. He can only tell them that it's integral that they find it, as it will decide the fate of the galaxy. They must stop an invasion from the Phantom Zone. The two most likely targets of where they will release the Phantom Zone will be uh, protected by the group following Metron. The group with Rocket goes to the Boiling Lake and are the ones to find Lore and his team. Unfortunately, the lake's energy interferes with Motherbox, which is how the princeling, Orion, keeps from going full Son of Darkseid. Ma'alafa'ak gets in the heads of Rocket and Orion, but Rocket is able to beat him with compassion. Jay Garrick Flash is stopped by their apocalyptic tech, and the two foragers are taken out by Mantis, who is also a bug like them. The bugs regroup, one taking care of Mantis, while the other one goes to rescue Jay. When the device is charged, Lore tells it to bring out Drew Zod from the Phantom Zone, his father, General Zod. Then a Promethean awakens on New Genesis, a giant stone being made out of the planet's Earth. It begins to spew out source energy, the stuff that created the universe, threatening to ignite the atmosphere of the whole planet. The bird lantern, let's see, his name is Tomar Ray. I'm terrible with the names of the lanterns. Uh, Tomar Ray creates a funnel and filters the energy into outer space, safely away from the planet. 
In the Phantom Zone, Zod confers with his wife and partner that they will be using Superboy to learn all they can of our modern world. When Lore picks up the Phantom Zone projector and calls for his father, it starts to bring him out. But Superboy, thinking it's stealing Lore or sorry, stealing Zod away from them, tries to drag him back down to the surface. Forger gets caught in the Apocalyptan tech device as Jay makes a whirlwind to block the Phantom Zone exit, and the other Forger takes down Mantis. Lore attacks the uh, the Bird Lantern Tomar Ray, forcing him not to defend himself and to keep the energy funnel going. So Lore is able to stab Tomar Ray through the chest, with the last of the energy being funneled away as he falls to the ground. Orion goes wild and traps Lore in a cage with him, beating his booty. Both bugs are trapped in the apocalyptic machine now, and as Green Lantern uh, dies, the ring finds them and chooses the female forager as its new host, which was, in my mind, a really satisfying moment. She does her little speech, and it's awesome. <laughs> the Legion in the invisible bioship arrives to destroy the Phantom Zone projector. Saturn Girl reaches out to Phantom Girl, the one who Connor has been keeping safe. Uh, she reaches out psychically and wakes her as the portal is closing, which Lore notices and is able to take over the bioship with his crew. Meanwhile, Tomar Ray has died. Metron, who has learned absolutely nothing from this experience, keeps the damaged time sphere. The Green Lanterns, New Gods of New Genesis, or just Gods of New Genesis, and Justice League Treaty is assigned and agreed. Is assigned. Is agreed and signed. As a new Green Lantern, Forager's plans of returning to, with Forager to Earth have been changed. Forager supports her, saying he sees how excited she is, and her ring should be able to make long-distance relationships possible. As Rocket returns home to her son, Jay returns home to Bart, or he would if Bart hadn't been on that bio ship when Lorazod pirated it. Back on the Zaytana stuff, she and Nabu, Dr. Fate, agree to, the, to her plan where her father couldn't. She's obviously the superior Zatara. The group of magical beings have, they have gathered include Mera and many others who take hands and attempt a spell, but their attempt at whatever they're doing fails. That's when we learn they are looking for Connor Kent's soul. They're failing because he ain't dead, folks, and it's Zaytana who brings this possibility up, saying now she needs a detective. I'm guessing we're not going to be seeing Batman. I'm guessing it's going to be Nightwing. And over the credits, Forager recites a love poem to Forager as he looks out into space, which is goddamn sweet. <laughs> Next up is the spoiler-free Multiverse of Madness reaction slash review. So if you're here for not spoilers, this is the one that you want to get in on. I did see the movie Friday, the Friday that it came out at noon, and I was not very happy when I left the theater. <laughs> um, individual parts were good. The whole was vaguely disappointing. Um, I cringed, like physically cringed, way too much for any movie to be good. Um, many lines were just so, so super cheesy that I just wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't going to work out. Uh, there's also a whole background of very vague, but definitely present misogyny. Uh, character cameos were pretty disappointing because we had seen characters from the comics uh, that were going to be appearing, but they didn't even get introduced or barely spoke, if at all. 
America Chavez was pretty good. They did her powers really, really well, did her moms really well, and I hope that we see more of them. I have two reviews from people who are not me, um, uh, friends of mine, uh, who have spoiler-free reviews that I wanted to put in here because I felt like they were super accurate. The first is that she was disappointed because she had so many expectations. She said, it didn't do much sequentially for the MCU timeline. Looking at it as a standalone movie, in a sense, versus an MCU movie, I really did enjoy it. For those who don't know and are going to see it, keep in mind that this is directed by Sam Raimi and is the horror movie-ish of the MCU. Most horror movie-ish the MCU has gotten may not be a very good choice for some children if scared easily. The second review is, Multiverse was a movie. It was fun. Plot was a little raggedy, but it was visually stunning visual effects-wise. There were some questionable cinematography choices, but they weren't too disruptive. I probably went to it with my expectations a little too high. At the end of the night, a lot of fun. I especially like the spooky bits. Could have been a bit better, though. That is what we have for our spoiler-free reaction. Now we're going to get into the spoilers. So if you don't want spoilers on Multiverse of Madness, be gone. Um, and this will end in me quoting an article for a minute about Wanda because I got thoughts and they wrote better than I did. Uh, starting off with, uh, well, let's just, let's just go over the sections we're going to talk. We're going to talk about the multiverse, Darkhold versus the Book of Ashanti, Clea, of course, America Chavez, Wong, the various strangers, the Illuminati, Christine Palmer, cameos, Wanda Gore, and of course, Wanda. So starting off with the multiverse. Uh, the multiversal de designation, they are saying that the I mean, MCU is Universe 616, which is the MCU people completely misunderstanding how the multiverse works as they themselves have set it up. The comics are 616, therefore the MCU cannot be 616 because that is not the same universe. That's uh, so stupid, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, also about the multiverse, they explain that dreams are just you seeing through the eyes of another version of yourself from the multiverse. And I gotta say, thank God I am not this version of myself that I dream about because she lives in a terrifying bubble universe that I have really weird disruptive dreams about every night, so... <laughs> But it kind of checks out because these dreams that I have are all in the same, like, bubble universe. It's kind of... If you, if, you, if you put me in a trans, I could probably draw you a map of it. <laughs> um, but that's, that's it for the multiverse. Uh, they gave the Illuminati universe its own designation, but we'll get to that when we cover that. Now, for the Darkhold versus the Book of Ashanti, I think they made it pretty clear in the movie. Vashanti is the ultimate magical good book. Darkhold is the ultimate magical book of darkness, which was written by the demonic entity Cathan. There we go. That's pretty much all you needed to know there. Uh, Clea. Now, I'm jumping towards the end of the movie now. Well, to the end of the movie now, uh, because this is the mid-credits scene where we see Charlize Theron as Clea. Um, if you are not aware, I am the professional of Clea. I've read her story front and back. I have every single one of her appearances summarized on my website. Um, and I did a roughly two-hour podcast special talking about her just a few weeks ago, if you want to check that out as well. So we meet Clea in their mid-credits scene, and I kid you not, my initial... The, 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 the main takeaway that I had from that whole scene was Rita Repulsa. I get they wanted to give her the shoulder pads that she kind of had in the comics, but they weren't shoulder pads in the comics. 
They weren't shoulder pads. They were just little shoulder bits that stuck out. There was no need for padding. There was not armor. <laughs> but they made it look like weird shoulder pad armor. And so she's like a Power Ranger. It is so bad. So bad. Um, and they also gave her straight, like pin straight, flat white hair. Which if you're familiar with the visual design of Clea, she has never once in a comic had straight hair. Her hair is notoriously weird and curly. Like, weird and curly is the best def description of her hair. It's weird and curly. It's un it's she's from the dark dimension. Her hair is dark dimension hair that does weird curls that defy gravity and physics and stuff. In my mind, her hair is probably a little bit lifelike and kind of just moves around and ripples and curls like octopus tendrils. But they gave her, I mean, very obviously a wig, <laughs> a white, a, a straight white wig, um, and it did not look very good on her, um, in my opinion, and they gave her this really bad eyeliner that just reminded me more of Rita Repulsa. <laughs> Um, apparently they wanted Lady Gaga for this role originally, so that is all that you have to know to understand why they gave her that hair and makeup that they did. It's, it's very strange. This, the character of Clea is absolutely nothing like Lady Gaga, so I do not know why they thought that, that would be a good source for her design or her, like, anything. I just, I don't, there is no parallel between Clea and Lady Gaga. Nothing. Lady Gaga doesn't even have white hair. She has dyed whatever color hair. Like, it's very strange. They just gave her an MCU design in the comics. Why did they not go with that? Because this shoulder pads thing, with the weird armored shoulder pads, is just super horrendous in my opinion. But uh, Stephen Strange as she spoke to him, definitely got a fear boner and definitely went with her because of that reason, um, <laughs> which feels wildly accurate to his character and to her character, honestly. Uh, her character more to where it's been developed and not where she started off. I was just super relieved that she didn't show up here begging for help because while, yeah, it was kind of more or less how she showed up in the comics the first time, that was 1960s. It is the year 2022, folks. We can do better than our lady characters begging for help. Um... <clears throat> She did cut an entrance to the Dark Dimension, which was very clear, and whisks him away. Uh, my desire now is to see them next going on whatever adventure this will be in a Disney Plus show, and then he can have his third movie another six years after that. Um, I, I don't see this really going into directly into another movie. I see it kind of like a universe hopping, or dimension hopping, really, is what it is, um, adventure. And she doesn't have any dimension hopping powers necessarily in the comics she uses sorcery to traverse dimensions which is how we've seen strange do it in the first movie and how they usually do it in the comics so her dimension sword which first of all looks just like psylocke Cyblade, like uncanny like it which is very odd um and it was interesting so why did she have that she has no there is no tool like that period in the comics so they just wanted to make up this thing to give her so that she's bad. I'm not, I'm not really sure their reasoning. Um, her lines were really terrible, um, but they did give Steven a fear boner, which again, wildly appropriate. So I'll go with it. Um, I am curious 
if they're going to mention the difference between universes and dimensions, um, because going to the dark dimension, I mean, it's there in the title, dark dimension, purple dimension, all those other dimensions that the, the lords, uh, the warlords, you know, they come from. I wonder if they're going to talk about, because going to the dark dimension, they're not universe hopping. They're just sliding over to a different dimension. Um, so I, I'm just curious how they're going to explain that, if they're going to bother explaining it, or just call it another universe. I don't know. America Chavez, they did go through her origin in the comic, um, the original comic origin, it seems, as far as I can tell. I really hope they don't go back and backtrack that and say, JK, she's a confused child who's actually from Earth. Because that would suck like it did in the comics when they did that. <laughs> I don't think they said the name Utopian Parallel, um, but that is where she's from. However, they did show both of her moms, and I was actually impressed with how much they look like her moms in the comics, which was really great. Uh, definitely felt like we're going to see America soon, uh, more of her, probably testing her powers and searching for her parents. It was a little too easy how she went from not being able to use her powers at all to sudden full control. There should have been a bit more of a spectrum of ability there, I think. Wong is still a Sorcerer Supreme, which everyone um, figured he got it out of a default and it would go back to Strange in this movie, but it didn't and he did not. So that's all great. Um, he earned the title by being a true master of the mystic arts and they do a good job of showing that a few times here and how he is learned of the mystic arts as well as the traditions and things in a way that strange never has been so he definitely deserves that um and they made him they gave him a few really really cool moments to save the day like with his lasso arrow thing fighting wanda etc etc the various stranges um the way that the movie ends is the third eye strange like the evil one i guess you would say is he he's like the status quo now, right? Is he like the main strange? It ended with him being the main strange. So, right? Was I wrong with that? Um, the Illuminati strange, who was from that Illuminati universe, he killed Thanos and then got executed by Black Bolt, which I still don't quite understand why they did that. Um, I guess just because they thought he was too overpowered, so they executed him. <laughs> And then Defender Strange, who was in all the commercials and everything, he is actually killed by the fiery demon right at the beginning of the movie, uh, fire demon likely being Sidorak. Uh, his body makes it to the MCU with America, and our Strange decides to hide it by burying it in the roof of some building. This comes into play a major way later when Strange chooses to dreamwalk with his dead version of himself in order to fight the Scarlet Witch from another universe so he can dreamwalk into the dead body of himself, right? this other version of himself and control it the way that Scarlet Witch can control other versions of herself in other universes. Uh, Strange does mention that the dead may take issue with him doing that, and they definitely do, coming out as angry black spirits to attack the dreamwalking, zombified Strange. But after some pushing, he's able to take over the situation, reining them in, controlling them, because again, he is a master of the mystic arts. Um, and he is able to, to prove that he's actually good enough to kind of do this and use them to basically create a cape of wings to fly him to Wundagore, which I have to say was probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. 
um, visually probably one of the best as well. Oh, ooh, I, I didn't write this down, but I just thought of it. Uh, there were two... <sighs> Danny Elfman did the music here, and I, I fail to see it. I don't see it anywhere. Um, not for a second. <laughs> but there are two... There, and, there are only two noteworthy music moments in this whole movie. One of them comes in, which we'll talk about in a second when we get to that point. But the other one was when it was Strange fighting the evil Strange or whatever he was, the Convergence Strange, the Third Eye Strange. I don't know what we're calling him. Um, and they start fighting each other with music. That was wild. <laughs> um, that might be my favorite scene in the movie. Um, just because it was visually wild and auditorily fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed that. That was, I, there's a lot about this movie that I'm going to shit on. I really enjoyed that scene. <laughs> um, so let's move on to the Illuminati. Uh, they are all coming from the same universe here. They're calling it Earth 838. Uh, it seems to operate out in the open as opposed to how in the comics this was a group that was so secretive that not even other heroes were meant to know about them. This, of course, leads to complications when they do bad things in the comics from Captain America's perspective. And they have to wipe Steve's mind to keep him from ratting them out, which is just going to show how they are morally compromised up the wazoo. <laughs> The Illuminati mentioned dimensional convergence taking place in their universe and they're needing to step in to do something about it. This is pulled directly from Jonathan Hickman's Avengers and Fantastic Four comics, which lead up to 2015's Secret Wars, which does leave the question of if we'll see that event played out over the course of a coming MCU phase. Every single one of the actors who were brought in and killed in the Illuminati were done so definite, definitively show that we will not be seeing those versions of them again, no version played by those actors. Um, I am a little bit bitter at how they killed off all of them, though I obviously get why. I just would really like to have seen what kind of Captain Marvel Maria would have been. Also, she dies by falling statue? She sees it falling on her and just covers her face. What happened to having blasting powers? I just think that is so dumb. Like, they couldn't think of an appropriate death for her, so they just did that. One theory I have to mention is that Scarlet Witch took away her powers in the fight just before, which I guess is possible, but there is literally nothing to suggest that is what happened, so... I don't know. Um, seeing Haley Atwell as Peggy Carter was amazing. Seeing her kick ass as Captain Carter in live action, even better. Seeing her killed... Not so much. Um, although we have to remember she is not the what-if version, but still that was pretty sucky and a stupid way to kill her again. The deaths of Black Bolt and Reed, on the other hand, were specifically done in humiliating ways on purpose to keep them from ever being asked to come back to play those characters. I feel like that point was very clearly made. Reed mentioned his wife, Wanda mentioned his kids, obviously this is referring to Sue Storm, the Invisible Woman, and their kids Franklin and Valeria. Fun fact, Franklin is uh, the most powerful person in the Marvel Universe, and Kang is a long-distant relation of Reed Richards by way of his daughter Valeria's future family line. It isn't quite known if Black Bolt was the one from the Inhuman show specifically, or just a parallel one. His costume was more accurate to the comics, but not really MCU-fied at all, suggesting that, um, in my opinion, he is not the TV version, who had an MCU version that just didn't really look like the comic suit. 
So by extension, we don't really know what kind of Medusa or other royal family situation there is on this Earth 838. Xavier was really cool to see with his 90s animated series wheelchair design, wobbly but visible telepathy, just like in the cartoon, and his animated series hover chair. So it does go to argue in a sense that 838 is the future of the 90s X-Men universe. Probably not actually, it's just one of a similar X-Team design. And you can't forget the most notable, one of the most notable musical moments in the movie when the X-Men animated theme plays over Charles's entrance into the Illuminati chambers. And it was pretty cheesy with them all introducing themselves in the way that they did. Quite cheese. Uh, they do have some Ultron sentries there as well, which suggests that their interactions with Ultron, however he might have come to be in Earth 838, were very different from how we saw them in the MCU. And as for our own MCU Illuminati, there is also speculation that the post credit scene of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings may have featured a grouping that could very much evolve into the Illuminati down the road. Shang-Chi, Hulk, Captain Marvel, and whoever else was in on that phone call. But yeah, that's not a bad idea. Christine Palmer. The Christine Palmer of Earth 838 is a senior fellow at the Baxter Foundation. The Baxter Foundation being set up by Reed Richards and the physical location of the Fantastic Four headquarters. Cameos of the movie. That's pretty much all I have on Christine. Oh, the only other note I have on Christine. That red wig was horrendous. It was so bad. So obviously a red wig. Oh my god, it was bad. This is the MCU. You guys have so much money. How is she wearing a shitty wig? <laughs> Cameos, cameos, starting off with quote unquote Sarah. Um, now this is uh, a bit of a weird one. She was set up as a love interest of Wong's in a sense for the movie it would look like, but it's not explained which comic character she's based off of. You have Sarah who has a romantic interest in Wong in the comics, but she's Native American and doesn't train in magic in this way. And she gets brutally killed in this. One of two black men, women in the movie who both die, so... Hmm. Uh, they gave her a single tear to fall down her cheek as she dies too, just like they did with Aunt May, which is wildly horrific in my opinion, <laughs> but okay. We love torturing women here in the MCU. Uh, the other Sarah that she could be was um, a relation of Mordo, but there was no reason to think that in this, again, they just, they made a big deal out of this character being a person who was going to show up and then didn't do anything with her. Same with Rintra. He was seen very clearly in several shots, but he never smoke, smoke, he never spoke, and he never got to interact with beyond, uh, got interacted with beyond being used as a hostage. He's a favorite, he's, he's the bullheaded guy, he's like the greenish bullheaded guy. He's a favorite of many Strange Comic fans readers, so making the point of him being in there but not doing anything with him literally is a confusing choice. In the comics, he was an apprentice to Steven for a while after Clea, kind of while she was out fighting for the control of the Dark Dimension. Um, in the wedding of Christine Palmer, we had Nicodemus West show up during uh, the ceremony. You can read more about him in his uh, rivalry with Doctor Strange in Doctor Strange The Oath by Brian K. Vaughan and Marcus Martin. Gargantos slash Shumagorath. This was the, uh, the squid, the octopus monster who was working for the demon that is hunting America, who we then learn is working for the Scarlet Witch. Uh, he is killed by, or it, I don't know, it is killed by having one of its eyes ripped out, which is an injury that we also know is how they killed Starro in Suicide Squad. 
Just saying. Uh, Spider-Man and Raimi. We do not have a cameo for this, but they reference not knowing if Spider-Man makes his webbing in his body like a spider, which he might shoot out from his butt like a spider. (laughs) It's low-key a reference to how Sam Raimi's Spider-Man shoots webs from his wrists, which was the only version of Peter to do so. They also made a joke about that in No Way Home. Um, So this was a nice little bit of follow-through for the like, yeah, that one Spider-Man he makes him a sylph and it's it's weird it's pretty weird and then Sidorak who was most likely the fiery demon from the beginning of the movie but that was never confirmed or even mentioned so who's to say the living tribunal apparently appears when America is crashing through universes but when I remember seeing that and I remember seeing it as a statue uh, like the one that we saw in Loki it did not look like the actual living tribunal to me but I guess I'll have to watch it again later to see And finally for cameos, Bruce Campbell, of course, showing up as Pizza Papa. This marks his fourth MCU, well, I should say Marvel movie cameo. They're all Sam Raimi movies. He was a wrestling announcer in Spider-Man, an usher in Spider-Man 2, a waiter in Spider-Man 3, and now Pizza Papa in Multiverse of Madness. I actually had to think for a second to remember what movie I'm talking about. Uh, Wondagore is going to be the location of interest that we're going to discuss here. It has some very complicated ties to the comics. Basically, it's where Wanda and her brother were genetically altered by the High Evolutionary and mothered by a cow woman. Yes, literally. Uh, Wendigore was first introduced in 1966, Thor 134, where we see the High Evolutionary, who does twisted genetic experiments there. We also see Wando and Pietro Maximoff recharging their powers, as it is later revealed that they were taken here as infants on the run from Magneto, their father at the time. It's been a lot of wishy-washiness with their parentage in the comics. In 2015, the twins discover that they are not mutants and their powers are the result of the High Evolutionary's experiments. Their Magneto parentage was debunked in the comics in 2014's Axis event. Interestingly, also Wondagore is where Spider-Woman Jessica Drew is genetically engineered and raised as an agent of Hydra. When she leaves and goes into the real world, she's a secret or she's a secret Hydra agent until she learns of their trickery basically over her and she turns against them. And as I mentioned, the last section here is going to be on Wanda. Um, uh, Ups and downs, right? Uh, Obviously Wanda is the one who sends the demon Gargantos after America or the demon and Gargantos after America because she wants to steal her powers so she can travel to a dimension where her kids are real and take the place of another Wanda there. I have issues with that. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, The line, it won't be Wanda who comes for her, it'll be the Scarlet Witch. Uh, the idea of the Scarlet Witch not as a superhero code name, but rather as a prophecy tied directly to the Darkhold is very cool, uh, but is not really explored. Her as a magical being is what they tie to the prophecy. I don't think they really make it clear that the connection to the name Scarlet Witch is a connection that she's seen in Wondagore. Um Obviously, in the comics, you find out that her true mother was the original Scarlet Witch and her true grandfather was the original Scarlet Warlock. Um, 
you could they could have done something with that tie it into her heritage that she's not the first scarlet witch that this is like a line of of beings like this um but they they really didn't they just kind of mentioned that she's part of some prophecy that they didn't even really mention what that was either <laughs> they just showed oh yeah she's carved into the wall here figure it out her costume was actually not as good on screen as I thought. Uh, the chest, uh, the sternum is what I'm talking about, not the bust area. Uh, it looked super, super plastic to me. I think it was supposed to look leather. It looked like rubber. Um, her blackened fingertips come from her use of the Darkhold and Dark Magic, so at least that was good. Wanda and Scarlet Witch, um, I really wanted them to fight the two different versions, you know, the two different universes, Wanda's. Um, I thought that Wanda of the other universe was going to end up being the next version that we see as the main Scarlet Witch character. Like, she would kill Scarlet Witch and then Wanda steps up and joins this universe with her kids as superheroes for this universe. That's kind of what I thought was going to happen, uh, but no, that is not it. Um, and also, I want to I want to ask, where the hell was she when we first see her in the movie? Because it's some big pretty orchard, and then she takes away the spell, and it's like, doom and gloom and red skies. How is that going to exist somewhere without anybody noticing? They noticed Westfield when Westfield was in a bubble. That was that was noticed pretty quickly. Why? How would this be something that was just like nobody knows about? It's a secret. Like that's no, no, that's stupid. I'm sorry. That was like a really dumb. I, I get they wanted it to be like this dramatic, like oh everything around her is dead. But I feel like they could have done that with like sticking her in an actual like wilted secret garden or something that was just like weird and dramatic and it looked like another planet but it wasn't I, whatever um also i just want to mention i don't think she deserves an oscar for this and just because someone shows emotion that is their job as an actor they do not deserve an oscar because they cried <laughs> tom holland did not deserve an oscar either so please stop saying that um, and also, finally, she is super duper not dead. So going back to uh, the issues that I have with her entire plot of stealing this child's powers, um, I have some quotes from an article by Lacey Bauer from Den of Geek. Um, the, the article is called Scarlet Witch Deserves Better Than Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. I'm, I took bits and pieces of it, but I'm going to um, read through them now because uh, Ms. Bauer really did a fantastic job of taking what I was feeling about the like slight ugliness and misogyny of this movie um, and putting it into words in a way that expresses why it feels so ugly. So in this article, she says, oh, actually, um, just to preface this, um, my issue started off with, my, my whole thought process on this started off with, um, why did she not start this by trying to get America to work with her willingly? Scarlet Witch actually doesn't need America's powers, she needed one universe jump. But even, but she never, she never really tried even. And, and after everything she went through and learned in WandaVision, she just immediately goes to, no, I'm going to be as forceful as I can again, because I learned, I learned nothing last time. Like, it, it was weird. But here's the article, um, much, much better worded than, than me. A woman who spends the entire movie frantically trying to murder a child in order to claim her powers, is how she was described. Um, according to a Rolling Stone interview, director Sam Raimi, quote, just saw key moments from some episodes of WandaVision, and that he was told directly was told directly impact our storyline. 
a fact that was both disappointing and maddening all at once. Did those key moments not include the series finale? Gone is the nuanced understanding of what Wanda has been forced to sacrifice in the name of the greater good, the show's delicate depiction of grief and the emotional trauma it leaves behind, and its innate understanding that her desire for a family wasn't about power, it was about peace. In its place is a sort of maternal madness, in which Wanda is essentially only defined by her desire to find some version, any version, of her sons. Equally erased are Wanda's hard-won steps forward, mentally and emotionally speaking. Yes, in WandaVision, she did something terrible in the name of her grief by mind-controlling a town, but she realized it was the wrong choice. It was She realized it was wrong and chose to undo it herself, with the full knowledge and understanding of the pain it would cause her to have to say goodbye to the family she made. That's growth, and it's something Multiverse of Madness conveniently chose, chooses to ignore, essentially telling the exact same story again, just with a higher body count and a lot less personal agency. After all, in the film, Wanda's also being corrupted by an evil magic book known as the Darkhold, so it's not even clear how many of her choices are her own. Instead of seeing a story that continued her that journey, that allowed Wanda to move forward, to find a way out of her depression and into a new purpose for life she still has to live, we got one in which Marvel's best and most nuanced depiction of trauma is abandoned in favor of fairly generic supervision supervillain origin story, just one with deeply creepy undertones about motherhood and female emotion. It's clearly not an accident that her sudden obsession with motherhood reads a lot like the depiction of female hysteria, but it's disappointing in the year of our Lord, 2022, after decades of commentary on the myriad and various ways that the comics these films are based of have done Wanda dirty in the same specific way. Turning a popular female character's nuanced emotional state into what is essentially a form of womb madness reads like nothing so much as an insult to every female fan sitting in the multiplex. The excuse that she was being corrupted by dark magic can only go so far, particularly given Strange's choices to commit many of the same acts he condemns for her at the end of the film. And after all, isn't that just another way to deny her agency in her own story? But unlike WandaVision, there's no prospect of healing or re rehabilitation or a promise of change. No one tries to reach out with compassion towards her or tries to stop her. Instead, she just dies, killing herself in the name protecting the multiverse from the power of the Darkhold. And while there's no way that Wanda Maximoff's story truly ends here, come on guys, it's a superhero franchise and she's basically the most powerful being in existence, she didn't deserve this movie, which literally buries all the deaf narrative work of WandaVision under a mountain of blockbuster big screen hubris again that was by Lacey bauer from den of geek and i really think pinpoints a lot of the uh, misogynistic ugliness that a good number of viewers took from this movie um, a lot of people have responded to these concerns of the movie's direction by saying people are too sensitive but it is, in fact, 2022, and we can do better with our plots and storylines. So why aren't we? The only answer is laziness, because it was convenient for the plot. There is always a better way, and you just have to be good enough of a screenwriter to make it work. And here, they were not. I have two more articles um, linked below that are, one is a Vulture article and one is from The Star, both of which are basically uh, bad reviews of Multiverse of Madness uh, that I read and felt very justified about how I felt about the movie after reading. 
on that somewhat depressive note, we are going to wrap up today's podcast. Um, It is late again, I'm sorry, but at least it's here. Um, And I hope that you did get some amount of enjoyment from my various downer reviews of things. Uh, Hopefully next week will be a bit better. Speaking of next week, we are going to do the news. We are going to do the picks, which I have not read anything. Actually, I did read something from yet. What was it? Um, I read... Oh, Halcyon Legacy. That shit sucked. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was bad. The art was tragic. The writing was half built. Ugh. Uh, and then we'll have the pull list for stuff coming out next week, which New Mutants 25 is back to being on the 19th. <sighs> it was the 5th, and then it was the 26th, and now it's the 19th. So hopefully it's actually going to stay the 19th now. Um... And we should be coming up pretty soon on solicitations for August, if you can believe that. We're getting into summer now, which means that we are going to be getting into late summer solicitations very soon. Uh, But yeah, New Mutants 25, that's going to be coming out this coming week with any luck. Uh, And I will be putting out a Madeline Pryor podcast because I love her and she deserves better like Wanda. Uh, Have a great week. It is nice out today for where I am, so I hope that you're having a nice time. I hope your week gets some enjoyment of the weather out of your week, and if you don't, I hope you get some enjoyment out of your inside time. Um, In any case, get sweaty about comics or whatever it is that you enjoy to get sweaty about, and check out all my links that I provide in the various places you know, uh, connect on social media, connect on whatever stuff we can, Join the Discord. We'd love to have you. Uh, See you next week.